Um, and if you don't mind to begin by introducing yourself and, and also to talk uh, about the BDS SA Coalition and, and then I guess we can introduce the, the conference that took place over the weekend. Okay, so I'm Roshan Dadu, the coordinator of the South African BDS Coalition. Um, and we came about a couple of years ago, bringing together different groups of Palestine solidarity activists here in South Africa. So groups like the South African Jews for a Free Palestine, a group called Palestine Solidarity Alliance, the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, and various campus groups um, and others um, into one coalition. But, and now the coalition is the affiliate of the Palestinian BDS National Committee. So we're part of the kind of global um, BDS movement. Um, and then it was partly out of that, the BDS movement globally were realized that they had over-focused on the North, on Europe and the mm. States in terms of developing solidarity and BDS campaigns. And so they launched a Global South initiative, which was just as the coalition was starting. So we were part of that, which got together. In fact, former presidents and stuff signed the initial Global South call. And the idea was to try to strengthen in Latin America, in Asia, and also in Africa, um, solidarity, the solidarity movement. So out of all of that, we started to uh, make connections with people and individual activists and groups where there were groups across the continent. And this meeting now we've just had in Dakar was in fact the first time we've come together in real life. Um, so we had a two day strategy meeting and then we had a meeting on the Saturday that was a kind of public event and a press conference. And for that we, um, we brought um, Mandela Mandela, the grandson of Nelson Mandela, and also Emma Nureri, who's the granddaughter of uh, Julius Molimo Nureri. So that was the Saturday. But I think I'll put the Facebook and Twitter handles because there's all, all the info and pictures and whatnot uh, going around there. <clears throat> but yeah, so that's, that's the coalition and how we, we started working um, with Papson and what brought us to have this meeting this now a few days ago. Oh, it was also, we decided to host it in Senegal, partly because there's a strong solidarity group there and the Amnesty International Senegal um, branch is quite strong, but more importantly, because of the whole AU fiasco and because Senegal, Macky Sall, the president is now the chair of the AU. And from that disastrous way in which the, the end of the heads of state meeting ended, with this committee of three in favor of Israeli accreditation and three against countries, heads of state, Macky Sall is now the chair. So, you know, it's important to try to <laughs> put pressure on him because he obviously can tip the balance in favor of Israel, especially as he just signed a multi-million dollar arms deal with Israel. But nevertheless, the feeling in Senegal is traditionally and still is very pro-Palestinian. And they do sort of almost, per, well, permanently chair the Committee on Palestine in the UN. So we're trying to put pressure, particularly on Senegal, because it's totally contradictory if they're chairing that committee and then, you know, allowing Israel to accredit to the AU. So that was why Senegal. <laughs> 
And I, I see that 20 nations attended uh, or sent delegations. Um, and I, I'm just curious over the course of the four day, uh, over the course of the weekend, um, what kind of subjects were discussed? What was the structure of the conference itself? Uh, was the focus entirely on uh, Israel's AU observer status or was there also a discussion like you mentioned of Israel's connections militarily, diplomatically with individual nations as well? Yeah, no, I mean, we started off because it was sort of the first time we'd all met together. We started off with each country giving a very brief um, sort of answer to a few questions about the solidarity movement and what Israel is up to in their countries and what are the challenges and what are the, the sort of possible um, uh, uh, opportunities and so on. Um, and then from that on the second day, we looked particularly at Christian Zionism, which is a huge thing on the continent. Um, in some countries, I mean, it's a massive people going, thousands of people go on so-called pilgrimages to Israel and the way in which the issue is, is, you know, is kind of told through the church and the way in which people relate to churches, mostly the evangelical and um, Presbyterian and churches, but the role they play is so significant that people were saying, you know, that, that the preachers are like mentors and fathers and you don't question them. And so if they get this idea that Israel is the home for the Jews because of some supposed biblical and theological arguments, people don't question it. So looking at ways in which we can try to challenge that because it's really just another field of Hasbara, but it's very potent in the continent. I mean, in South Africa too, but even more so in other countries. Um, so that was one thing we looked at particularly. And then also the agriculture and development assistance, because that's the other thing Israel's targets in Africa. These kind of water projects and agri-tech projects and training people and blah, blah, blah both as the, 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 the government you know, development assistance, but increasingly, well, Israel changed its strategy to, so that now the government encourages these startup companies to come, uh, they get incentivized to come and do these projects and partnerships, but often they just fail anyway. You know, they big it up and they make it sound really great to governments and stuff, but in reality, we're, we're sort of mapping with, in South Africa, we just started, well, we've kind of mapped what projects there are and they're way more than you would think in a country that takes a strong Palestinian position. But in other countries, it's worse, but often they don't, you know, they're kind of like white elephants. The, the, I think in Angola, they set up this Moshav and it was this huge farm thing. And it's just like in tatters now, there's no, you know, it's kind of not, it, it doesn't work or it doesn't, you know, it's just a, a sort of showcase basically for then selling governments, military and high-tech spyware and stuff like that. You know, it's kind of a way in, a soft way in to, to, to make people feel that Israel is beneficial for development, especially because it offers all this training and stuff. So that was the other big area that we looked at. I mean, some of this high-tech stuff hasn't, you know, those that scandal recently where, where a company claims to do something before it's even actually 
done it. What do you call that? Remember, it was in the news recently, a big scam where people gave money for something like a startup thing. So they claim, make all these claims and then often it's not even like they've actually done it outside of, of uh, you know, kind of laboratory setting. Or it's not, it's just not you know, applicable. It's not done with any kind of real intention to have, you know, of what the conditions and the context is. So they sort of sound very flashy and good, but don't, aren't sustainable. Don't, well, there's one project that, where they to do with getting water from clouds. I don't know, something. But it, in reality, it's what, what our water, someone who used to head up our water, uh, the government department said, it's like having a, a generator on the back of a little truck. You know, it's really not something that's, that's you could seriously propose to answer the needs of water for all and access to water <laughs> in South Africa that was. So those kinds of projects. And then leading from that into the military and the spyware, like the Pegasus spyware and so on, um, because obviously those products are tested on Palestinians and then use the only reason our governments will buy them is to use it on us. So, you know, it's it's a no-win situation <laughs> both ways or to fuel conflicts like in the north of Mozambique at the moment in Cabo Delgado, there's the involvement of kinds of Israeli uh, military things. Kenya has a very strong military cooperation with Israel. I mean, they actually have proper training and they have developed their their intelligence and security services. So to try to get information and find out about that and expose that because it impacts on, you know, it's a way of saying, look, this is what they do <laughs> to Palestinians, but then this is what they do here. That we also end up suffering from these things. So that was the other kind of main area we looked at. And I'm curious in how, uh, so discussing the, the history of military and developmental coordination, we've seen definitely with respect with the, the AU and uh, recent diplomatic moves, Israel trying to kind of move itself closer to African nations, or in, in the case of uh, under the Trump presidency, this move to try and get countries like Morocco and Sudan to recognize Israel, which has promoted a huge backlash by the people who actually you know live there and, and are in support of Palestine. So I wonder how that divide kind of came into play and in that South Africa, as as you mentioned, has historically, because of the history of apartheid, been one of the strongest pro-Palestine nations and has this downgraded diplomatic status. But other African countries have a much stronger diplomatic status, have, you know, for whatever reason, uh, if they've been coerced into it by the US or they believe they need it for military reasons, uh, have a, a stronger relationship. So how did this divide going in with some nations? And even we saw it at the AU as well with the debates going back and forth. Some nations, you can kind of consistently see they're taking a certain path because of their history with Israel. So did that play a role in what countries did and did not attend? Uh, and did it impact the debates or were pretty much all the countries in attendance solidly in the in the pro-Palestine camp? I mean, yes, they were solidly in the pro-Palestinian thing. It was activists, so it was civil society, not mm -hmm. government. 
um, from all the countries. So we did have someone from Morocco and some two people, I think, from Sudan. Um, it's, you know, so we were looking to see how can we collectively help them put pressure on their governments. But of course, in the case of Sudan, it, you know, it, it's possible that Sudan could change its position if, but, you know, they said people, they were demonstrations still every day and people were getting killed in these demonstrations. But, you know, it's still not, at least the, the popular movement is still there to, to try to get rid of the military-led um, regime that's, you know, that's there, that has, you know, been the one that has gone along with this normalization with the UAE and this promise of, of sanctions being dropped. And again, with Morocco, there's a huge popular sentiment against having this normalized relationship with Israel, but the government has, you know, gone along, gone ahead with it for whatever its own, I mean, Morocco anyway is a colonizer like Israel. So, you know, they've always had this kind of, a, if not formally openly, this kind of similarity in the way they, they operate. Um, but even with South Africa, I mean, we've downgraded our embassy in Israel. We still have a massive Israeli embassy here. And just recently, a new ambassador was, you know, at the normal giving their, their credentials, but as a normal country, I mean, we made a fuss about it, but, you know, it's not, we have not broken diplomatic ties nor have we broken trade ties, nor have we got consistently uh, any kind of policy around sports and culture boycott. There was a big noise when our Miss World, Miss South Africa um, was going to Israel for the Miss Universe contest. And then, uh, then the government said it was true support. But just last week, a Davis Cup tennis team went from South Africa to Israel. And we made a fuss about it and we wrote to the government and said, look, you know, show some consistency, but that we haven't heard back from them. So it's not, you know, it's not, it's not always consistent. I think at the moment our foreign minister is very strong on the issue of Palestine and she's really, really raised it up in the AU and our president then also in the heads of state meeting. But, you know, again, South Africa, doesn't want to operate alone. And you can see that Israel is trying to isolate South Africa's voice in multilateral fora on the issue. Sadiq took a position against accreditation, but then there, there's countries within Sadiq that broke the consensus basically, which is an issue for Sadiq because it's not normally how they operate if you do get a Sadiq position. And it was a fight to get that position apparently, but you know, then the, the norm is that you don't break the consensus. Like with the AU, the norm is that it's things that are agreed on the basis of consensus. So the whole question of Israel is, is having a bigger impact than just that in the way in which the AU operates. And of course, Israel wants to divide the Africa bloc voting in the UN General Assembly, um, particularly now with the growing call for Israel to be called out as an apartheid state and for some kind of resolution to go to the General Assembly, which could potentially lead then to sanctions and so on, because the argument is, of course, well, if it's an apartheid state, then do what you did to South Africa. So, you know, they, they want to break up that because without, 
the Africa block is the biggest number of votes. So if you can break that consensus, you can, um, you know, in their mind, you can then make sure that such resolutions never get passed. So, you know, th those, those, that's the kind of situation at the government level. But nevertheless, if you can, you know, if we can mobilize on the ground, grassroots, civil society, academics, all the rest of it, um, and support each other across the continent, there is the possibility that governments also need votes. So apart from the really despotic ones, they do at some point need to uh, listen to what people are saying or if opposition parties take up the cause, you know, you have some possibility of, of changing that. But also just to make people more you know, raise awareness that this kind of idea of Israel as this benign benefit, you know, benefactor for development assistance isn't the case, that it does sell this military stuff that fuels wars on the continent and to try and challenge this, this Christian uh, Zionist, well, saying Christian Zionist, but, you know, broader influence within Christianity that, that you know, spreads a myth basically about Israel. But also with the issue now of Ukraine, of course, you know, people are saying, look at the hypocrisy. It clearly is possible for the international community to very rapidly isolate a country. And this, you know, like FIFA, they always say, oh no, but FIFA will never and UEFA will never. Well, they did it within a couple of days. They, I think FIFA first of all said they would, uh, get Russia to or the Russia games to play you know without an audience and then even that they were pressured to say no they won't play at all we, you know in two days that was done with all the other kind of sanctions and measures to isolate culturally and every other which way Russia it does prove that it is actually possible and increasingly you know people are making that that uh, comparison and that hypocrisy on the part of the West in particular around who you decide is the biggest enemy and how you can act against them. Whereas this situation for 70 years goes on and nobody, you know, you, you can't do anything about it. So I think perversely that may also at least make people feel that something can be done and that the international community can actually do something if it wants to. So then the question is, why doesn't it want to? Why are countries not wanting to do that? Or why is a Palestinian with a Molotov cocktail or even a pebble or even nothing in their hands a terrorist? And why are they, you know, explaining on BBC how to make a Molotov cocktail in Ukraine? It's ridiculous, <laughs> the notion of who has the right to resist and so on, or who has the right to be a refugee. Right. And I, I think that speaks to something that I also, you know, heard from uh, when I when I talked to Africa for Palestine, which was this historical sentiment of, of solidarity that is kind of deep within uh, within African nations. And on, on the one hand, so as you're saying that the history of uh, resistance to colonialism that all African nations had to experience and therefore have you know this solidarity uh, at some level with Palestine for their current ongoing struggle against colonialism, 
But then at a more at a more recent level, for example, with South Africa, I wonder how the the Amnesty International report on apartheid, had, you know, now coming out, um, it seemed like it it was a huge uh, title shift within South Africa, at least to say, you know, this is this is like confirmation of of apartheid. You had a statement come out from the international relations minister who said this would be the pretext for direct diplomatic action against Israel. We're, we're still waiting to see exactly what that means. But I wonder how the Amnesty International report in particular has helped shift the conversation to help South Africans understand this in the in the in the you know view of apartheid, which already was happening, but now is kind of confirmed in, in some level and also how elements of solidarity like that, like that anti-colonial struggle, help uh, people from across the African continent understand the Palestinian situation? Yes, I think it's helped enormously, but also because it's almost the culmination of so many other reports from B'Tselem and Yeshdin in Israel, uh, the Human Rights Watch report, various UN, that report, I can never remember the acronym, the East, um, the West Asian UN body where the report was then uh, pulled, uh, I can't remember the, the acronym, and then various South Africans, I mean our human HRSC, uh, Human Re Research and Science Council, HRSC, wrote a report, it was over 10 years ago, sort of kind of a report evidencing you know, actions of Israel as apartheid, um, eminent South Africans like Archbishop Tutu who came back from Palestine and said it was worse than apartheid. So that it's all of those things together, I think, that Amnesty reports have sort of uh, galvanized that. And I think Amnesty has done quite well in publicly, you know, not just publishing the report, but having a strategy of publicizing it afterwards. Um, so the author of the report, Saleh Hijazi from Amnesty in Palestine, um, was in South Africa a couple of weeks ago. So we had meetings with him and he met with the government, with the foreign minister and so on. So I think they've really made an effort to, to use the report and to make the point and to, to, to sort of almost makes it a consensus in a, in a way of and of course, initially, Palestinian people themselves who were saying this is apartheid, but now even the PA is saying it's apartheid, which they had not previously, and our government is slowly getting that language into its, its, uh, its, you know, its statements and so on. So yeah, I think it's had a big impact, and it, of course it makes South Africa, it kind of highlights South Africa as soon as you say apartheid. So, Obviously, we are trying to say yes, as well as a settler colonial state, it's an apartheid state, and those links with the liberation movements on our continent with Palestine that were so strong, even for younger people on the continent who maybe don't relate to their own liberation struggles in the same way or feel their liberation, what were the liberation movements in government have let everybody down. There is a renewed interest in a decolonial uh, discourse. So again, trying to bring that the Palestinian struggle and the apartheid issue into that um, that kind of uh, anti-colonial, decolonial 
eyesing of, of things. <laughs> and then again, you know, I think it's helped in that way too. And in fact, Saleh Jazu also came to Dhaka, so that was quite good. I, I guess and on that on that note, you mentioned that at the outset the the rationale for moving towards having global South solidarity with Palestine. And I, that prompted me to wonder whether uh, kind of the theme of analysis that I've been seeing and, and even in this conversation of trying to ask why, uh, you know, northern, I guess, in the global North nations, for example, are so willing to have solidarity with with Ukraine, but so unwilling to have solidarity with Palestine. Do you think that this is the beginning of a, a new kind of uh, initiative on behalf of the pro-Palestine movement to go where, you know, solidarity historically has been from uh, other global South nations that are part of, that have this anti-colonial experience that sympathize with Palestine. But I guess in the world now, as, it, as it's changing to potentially be something of a multipolar world that has opportunities for uh, the global south to assert itself more definitively do you see that as a, a new strategy for the bds movement to shift away from trying to convince uh global north nations to you know to sanction israel which seems like a, a long time uh, process and to shift towards encouraging the countries that already may have some sympathy or may be inclined to have some sympathy with palestine to take a more definitive stance like South Africa, which has been such a leader? Yeah, I don't know if it's a, you know, a new strategy. I think it was more, you know, you tend to rely on the global South and in the UN especially to take a pro-Palestinian line and, and not realizing like in Africa, the ways in which Israel is capturing governments on the continent and actually and undermining that. Um, so I think it was more, not and also not having built up quite as strong. I think in in particularly in Europe, but also maybe in the States, there's there's been a quite a change in the in the strength of the Palestine solidarity movements in both those countries. Although governments are not budging, and there's a lot of you know repressive legislation around BDS and stuff. But it seems like certainly I grew up there. My parents were in exile. South Africans in exile under apartheid there. And, you know, it was very, very small, the Palestine solidarity movements at the time. It was not a, a popular issue. I mean, it was still, we were still working to make the South African anti-apartheid movements, you know, into a popular movement. But it seems like there has been a shift. And so now, you know, in a way, forces are a bit strengthened and looking at the global south where there's been a whittling away of that, that traditional support. I think it's made the, the, the BDS movement to really Well, in that case, I, I think my final couple of questions are, where do you see the movement for Palestinian solidarity on the African continent growing and, and expanding? What are the areas of of opportunity and then where this uh, question of Israel's observer status within the African Union is heading. Um, the last, as you said, the last update I saw was it was kind of uh, tabled indefinitely by the, the AU heads of state to be discussed at a further date. 
uh, it seems that there's a general agreement that the move was taken without proper consultation of, of the other nations within the AU. But I think it brings up a question of, you know, the African Union previously having been the organization of African unity uh, had Israel as an observer, um, but with it changing to the African Union, I guess kind of in the post-apartheid era as well, uh, South Africa trying to take a more definitive role and being still consistently pro-Palestine had been able to successfully delay that, that observer status for a while until recently. So I wonder if that too is a sign that something is changing within the general African Union membership, or if this was still just a unilateral move taken by the, by the AU without consultation, and there's going to be a significant pushback that can recommit to the stance, the post-2002 post-apartheid stance of, of being definitively pro-Palestine. Well, I think firstly, the decision was taken unilaterally by the chair of the commission, the Safati. So it wasn't even up to discussion. You know, we knew that it would be controversial and that it wouldn't pass through consensus. So it's all been done in a very underhand way, actually, because he initially accepted the credentials of the Israeli ambassador, which apparently in the constitutive act and the duty regulations, he's in his power to do that, but obviously on something so controversial, you know, don't, don't do that because you, if you know that you're going to get a number of countries in some of the world, in fact, the stronger the countries that underpin the AU and the part now from Libya is from, but Nigeria, Algeria, and South Africa are going to object to it. So, you know, the whole thing was shoddy, and then it went to the foreign ministers. It was a battle of the foreign ministers to get it on the agenda. It was originally just on the, on the notes of decisions taken, you know, right at the end of the meeting, not an item for discussion. And our foreign minister in Algeria pushed to get it on the agenda so it was easily discussed. Then the discussion was so poorly chaired, and personally, you know, it was poorly chaired in the trying to shut up our minister and the other ones that they knew were going to object, they didn't also then have a proper process. So the meeting kind of that sort of minister was the end of the chambers and it was just to be okay with go to the heads of state. So none of it has been done properly. Then it went to the heads of state and again the whole thing was a shambles. In the morning it was discussed and it was understood by everybody. Um, but Israel was not we knew that they were going to propose this committee of the two countries in favor of the event, which is fine if, in the meanwhile, Israel has no status. It's not fine if, in the meanwhile, Israel retains its accreditation because then you're stuck with them and you've got people on the events and Makisar as chair. So, how they were going to, to resolve it, I don't know. But the problem was that in the morning it was understood that they would not be accredited until this committee came with some resolutions or recommendations. By the evening, it was somehow changed so that when the president was kind of summating at the end of the meeting, it was it was it was clear that Israel was not not accredited in the meanwhile. So South Africa was trying to raise objections and they were not taking. There was taking the speakers, and it was a big 
you know, again, you know, like a, a managing the whole thing. Then Matisal was insisting, no, we must go, it's the Aspen final, in the finals. So we have to actually direct, because she has to go direct the, the football. And others were saying that. So the whole thing was just left in a mess because you could see the media. We were following through the day from people that we knew in different, different countries that were there at the AU. People started reporting it to victory as well as being thrown out from the morning. And we were saying, I tried to figure out what was going on. And then other people were saying, no, 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 it's not. So the whole thing was really confusing. And only by the evening we could see that they sneakily managed to keep this girl in whilst this committee delivered. So it was very strange, you know, none of this has been done properly. The process hasn't been properly done. So I think even on that basis, you know, you can, countries may feel that people forget about the matter. Um, just because it's having a bigger impact, like you said, it has a big impact Sort of, you know, supposed to be kind of 
That sounds very uh, exciting, and uh, and from that, I, I hope uh, I can assume there will be more uh, Pan-African anti-apartheid conferences in the future. Yes, definitely, and I'll put well, thank you so much for, for taking the time out of your day uh, to give me more information about the conference. And it sounds fantastic. And uh, I would love definitely to attend a, a future one. So uh, so take care and, uh, and you know, good luck with the, the continuing struggle, even though it, it is very difficult um, to break through at, at times. Um, it's definitely something that is very, very valuable. And this continuing kind of cooperation from the Global South with supporting and, and having solidarity for Palestine is very important. And I've been really impressed to see the initiative being taken by definitely South Africa in particular, but really uh, this emerging coalition of African nations to, to really push for action. Um, so I think it's something to continue watching in the future for sure. Yes, for sure. I'll send you the article as soon as it's finished. Yes. Yes, for sure. All right. Take care. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.